You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Jeffrey Craner on the show with me. He has an amazing new book. It's called You Feel It Just Below the Ribs. And this, if you are a fan of Jeffrey's podcast of uh, Welcome to Night Vale or Within the Wires, uh, you're going to love this book. And uh, this is on my recommended gift giving list uh, this season as we're going into Christmas and and uh, you know the gift giving season. This is something that that will definitely be on your list uh, for book lovers in your life. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you, Hank. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Jeffrey, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? I think it was in fifth grade where uh, they sort of planted the seed. I remember reading the I, I'm going to get this title wrong, but it's like Alexander's No Good, Terrible, Very Bad Day, like classic. Uh, uh, I remember that grade school book and yes. uh we had we had read that and you know it was funny or whatever and I ended up making my own version of the book so I just did a parody of the like not parodying the book but just kind of parodying my own life of my own dumb stupid <laughs> dorky day or whatever I, f- I forget what I titled it but it was just about my own life and it was I sort of gave it to a friend of mine in class and he thought it was funny and then uh our teacher Mrs. Hall wanted to uh wanted to read it and she thought it was funny and she asked my permission to read it for the class so she offered me to read it in front of the class and i was too embarrassed and she did and everyone laughed and i was like this was fun uh this seems like a fun thing to do and it it really didn't set in until much later that it was a thing you could actually do until i was like in high school and started writing for the high school newspaper and was like oh yeah writing articles plays whatever i would love to write some things and have people read them that that's an amazing answer and um several things in that 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 i uh that i want to ask you about first off um the the idea of a parody and and not necessarily parodying the story like like you said but parodying um life and and the way that you see things and uh, you know the the interesting way that you observe the world and then spin it into um you know these these fantastical kind of stories and and any of us that have followed your other work your your podcast and things like that will pick up on this kind of sense of parodying the uh the reality and and you know putting a, a fun spin on it but uh, and also a spin that that you know gets us to thinking about things um where do you think that that uh love of parody and um taking and uh, kind of a an askew glance at the world. Where do you think that comes from? I think I was always drawn to comedy, even as a kid. Like I liked, uh, I just liked funny things. It, I grew up on like a lot of kids in the '80s grew up on 
Sesame Street and, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers and Electric Company and, you know, kids shows like that. And I, I was always really drawn to Sesame Street because of the Muppets. Right. Like there was just yeah. a there was just a level of goofy humor that I think I was always more drawn to. And, uh, you know, as I got older, I, 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 I don't know. There's just something about like maybe it was the friends I was with, the people I was around. Uh, I think my family always sort of appreciated comedy, uh, good joke telling, things like that. So. Yeah, leaning that direction and, and in junior high and high school, I found Dave Barry, like my grandparents had a bunch of like humorous on their bookshelf, people like sure. Irma Bombeck and Louis Grizzard and Dave Barry and people like that. So I just I don't know, I just uh, I just started gravitating towards that. It seemed fun to take existing material and kind of like turn it on its head, um, you know, uh, kind of kind of repurpose something to see if, if you can find a, a different type of humor in that. Weird well, Owl. The, a Weird Owl was a oh, big yeah. thing when I was a kid, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, what part of the country did you grow up in, Jeffrey? I grew up near Dallas in a suburb uh, named Mesquite. So I grew up in in uh, just, 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 just east of Dallas. Um, yeah, just kind of like a little cozy suburb with a giant mall <laughs> on the, on the <laughs> outer uh, interstate right. loop. Yeah. So I, I love to ask people um, because I, I find that it that pops up in interesting ways uh, in, in a lot of people. The, this idea of a sense of place and how it affects us and, and sometimes it, it affects us directly and, and people write stories uh, based in and, and around the places that they grew up and had the most impact on them. Uh, but sometimes it comes out in, in subtle ways in the the um, the relationships between people in a particular place or, um, you know, some of the more subtle under the surface things. Um, do you feel like growing up in 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 East Texas um, has affected you in, in any sort of way, maybe obvious or not obvious? Yeah, I, I think just sort of growing up in kind of a generic suburb like it, it felt uneventful to me i think this is kind of a story of a lot of people uh, of the gen x generation too <laughs> like you grow up in a in kind of a, a homogenized suburb and you you yeah. watch television and films and you're like this is not my experience here so you you get a lot of you get a lot of uh vicarious experience through art um, and and it's not to say that growing up in a suburb is entirely a homogenous experience. I think that's been changing a lot. Um, oh, but but I think for me, it was a matter of there was just kind of a blank slate to the suburbs that you could sort of lay whatever you wanted on. And I think I, I, I was sort of drawn towards absurdity. I really loved it when shows like uh, uh, Erie, Indiana or Parker Lewis Can't Lose or Twin Peaks came about because they kind of took these like humdrum towns and made them seem way more exciting than they actually were you know that you could just put strange monsters or weird people or just bizarre camera angles um and and kind of make something seem more exciting uh than it was was that sort of the the impetus that that brought um night veil to life this this uh idea of you know kind of small mundane places that that have something more going on beneath the surface yeah i think i channeled a lot of my mesquite into into <laughs> night veil like I, I i definitely like uh there's certain like street names and and locations the uh that that just felt like uh that i could just slide into to night veil when i write episodes and and uh yeah i, th I think that's what it was is that that what what made night veil really 
fun to write as a counterbalance to my growing up in Mesquite was one is like layering the weird onto the mundane. But but two, I think what what makes Night Vale sort of interesting for me was always like a kind of aspirational writing, writing a town where people listen to the community radio station. Uh, however flawed the narrative might be coming sure. out of that station. But I, I think it was this this thought that like people care about the city council and people care about what's happening in their town that people sort of like rally together, maybe in Independence Day style, but also maybe just in local politics. They're doing bake sales. And even if it's to support the blood space war, it's still like we're actively involved in our schools. We're actively involved in our PTAs and our city councils and building rec centers, things like that. And I think that was an experience I didn't really have growing up. I didn't really observe that type of like community interaction. Uh, there were parents that came to school events, of course, but um, I didn't really sense the this kind of like rah-rah our town type of thing. Gotcha. A lot of people, Jeffrey, um, you know, have uh, this um, innate uh, ingrained sense of storytelling in them like like you described that you know from an early age kind of feeling this draw um but then also like you said you know you you go to uh, to college and and getting into life and realize oh yeah there's this thing that you know maybe i'll start um you know working on this or you know see where it goes um very few people i've met we've done uh, you know 1200 episodes of this podcast and, and very very few people uh, had a singular focus that, that you know uh, about being a storyteller, and you know that the the only thing that they concentrated on in college and then working after that was was telling the story and getting published. And most people have you know stories of of having this thing inside them, but then also having to deal with life and, and you know and and starting a family and all the the great things you know about life that come around and. And then storytelling has a way of working itself back into their life. Uh, what, what was your experience? I think that's a pretty close summation of how I went about it, because I, I was really interested in the arts, really interested in writing. Uh, I, When I got into college, I got really into theater. I wasn't an actor, uh, and I wasn't really <laughs> really good at tech or, or painting sets or anything like that. So... I really got intrigued with with playwrights uh, and studied a lot of like theater history, things of that nature. And I, I think it really never occurred to me that you could do that for a living, it, it, if that makes any sense. Like I knew people wrote for a living, but how to go about it was so hard. And like you said, you you have to live your life. So I just I got a, a full time job doing fundraising for a for a dance company in Dallas. Uh, after after I graduated and I worked in I worked in nonprofit arts fundraising for for, you know, more than a decade after that. And and I uh, I kind of started figuring out that you could do small things. You wouldn't get paid really for them. But I started working with smaller theater companies and, you know, doing uh, 24 hour playwriting things or whatever. And, uh, you know, small little festivals. And uh, I found that it was really hard even to submit work to get produced. And so what I started doing was finding groups that just wanted to get together and do their own thing and just kind of you just sort of self-produce. And I did that for, a, you know, a good decade and a half before I even got to making Night Vale. 
so Night Vale is uh, is very much uh, akin to putting on a play, um, but it's you know old style radio drama, um, which I absolutely love. Uh, and then then writing a novel is is a different uh, muscle in the storytelling mm-hmm. skeleton that that you you know uh, get to flex. They're they're all connected, but they manifest in in different ways. Um, what first off, what was it that that enamored you so much to playwrights and to the um, the uh, the art form of you know writing for performance. I, I think it was the I think it was just seeing everything come to life, hearing other you know going back to that fifth grade experience. It was really interesting hearing somebody else read my writing out loud. Uh, I, I I didn't think about it at the time, but I, I think looking back, I think that had a really big impact on me that. Something you wrote, you didn't have to be present for it. You know, you didn't have to do that. You wrote a thing and you got to see somebody else embody the thing that you wrote. And uh, you can kind of listen to a performer, in this case, Mrs. Hall, my fifth grade teacher in Porter Elementary. You know, I wasn't really that critical. I was sort of embarrassed and and ecstatic that she was doing this. But I, you know, as as I go go on with life, you, you sort of like figure out how to like shape how it's all consumed i I like i like that there's just so many moving parts and i like that you get to see it come to life on stage it's uh it's there's something really fun about that and and theater i just found uh, above all is so immediate it's so such an it's a thing that you can only experience right there in the room and it felt like a puzzle to me to try and write a play to try and figure out like you can't explain everything you want to explain you need to write short dialogue that responds to the moment rather than just writing jokes if that makes any sense sure dabble is a proud sponsor of author stories dabble is an easy to use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize plot and create amazing stories wherever they are write in our desktop app on your mac or windows computer tablet or mobile device dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Um, I 
I think of it, um, and 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 tell me if if this is right or not. But I have some friends that are stand up comics, and we we've talked about the idea of if you're a novelist, you're going to spend the majority of a year by yourself working on this manuscript, and it's going to be you and the manuscript for a long time. And then you're going to bring in an editor, um, you know, maybe some beta readers, uh, different people that you can kind of bounce the story off of and you get feedback. And and then, you know, the editorial process is is a is a new process in this creation. And and you go through that. And then, you know, when when we have a book that we're holding in our hands, that's been through several stages of the process when you're a stand up comic or if you were um, a stage actor, um, I would think that, uh, you know, you get kind of editorial feedback in real time, uh, you know, whether this joke lands or, you know, whether, you know, in this um, particularly emotional scene in in this play, is, is the audience reacting the way I, I want them to? And then, you know, maybe the next night you put this show on, you, you know, are making adjustments. Um, how do you how do you feel like the process of of writing for stage or performing on stage and writing a novel, even though they're, they're huge similarities. Um, there, there's some real differences in those two forms, isn't there? There, there are. Yeah. The, the writing alone, and you do have other people that can read, uh, the thing, but you, you don't have the visceral feedback that you do when you're a standup comic, you know, a novel writing at, at least, well, that's a little bit more complicated to figure out exactly how the reader is going to consume your writing, how well the pacing goes, how well the story flows for them, how much they want to not put the book down or just give up on the book altogether. It's so hard to know that because you don't have the immediate response. But that being said, I do find novel writing is a bit more forgiving that people will grant you more latitude. Um, anything on stage has to be everything is vitally important. And I'm not saying that in novel writing, you can just kind of riff for however long you want. Um, uh, I just read a novel. I don't know why I completed the whole thing, but it's 600 pages long. And the first 300 pages, like a bunch of stuff is introduced that never gets paid off. And it was, uh, you know, it was just, it was a real slog. And I found that I made my way through it because I kind of just enjoyed being immersed in the world that the author was creating. And so that's a thing that's a little harder to get away with in theater and in and in stand-up comedy um, because we're not there for immersion. We're there for immediacy. We're there for you telling me the story. So uh, it, it kind of, it, it, you know, it's, it's six dozen one way, half dozen the other. Uh, but I always think about cooking when I think about creating art at all. Like you just, the longer you do it, the more you learn what things are supposed to taste like and you know what tastes good. And sometimes I get to the point where I don't have to taste certain foods that I make because I know, I mean, I do taste them, but like, I, I know it's, I know what it's going to taste like the moment I put the spoon to my mouth, um, before I serve it. And I, I think the same thing can happen with writing and with stand-up comedy, you know, when a joke is going to kind of land and, uh, it's just a matter of refining it to the point where, you know, it will land every time that you do it. And, uh, I think with novel writing, um, you just don't quite have that immediate. There's no one sitting around the table with you to be like, this tastes great <laughs> because <laughs> it's just so hard to hand off 400 pages to somebody and be like, hey, read this and give me your thoughts. That's not a thing they can do in a in a 45 minute set. Right, right. 
I, I love that you described reading that novel as, as a bit of a slog, uh, <laughs> but you enjoyed being in the world. And I, that is, that's not for nothing. Um, you know, world building is, is incredible. And, um, and yes, we, we want our stories to pay off. Absolutely. The, in the things that we promise in the beginning, you need to, to make sure you resolve in the end. Um, but there is something to be said about world building and, and letting your readers just enjoy being in the place that you've created as someone who has created, you know, fantastical worlds with night Vale, et cetera. Um, when, when you're dealing with a long running, um, property, like a podcast, like night Vale, um, how much of, I guess what I'm asking is when, when you're, when you're dealing with a with a project like that, your your world building is essential. You want people to be there and be comfortable there and and want to come back to that world. Yet you know, as a storyteller, that there needs to be payoffs as you go, especially with something that is going to be on ongoing and and continuously running. How do you judge those payoffs uh, and keep the world open, uh, you know, for the story to continue? With Nightvale, one thing that's really great about it is because we're approaching 200 episodes of this show, we, we kind of can just sort of do whatever we want uh, with, with the idea that continuity has to be a thing. You know, this isn't uh, The Simpsons, right, where ever, you know, Bart is the same age as he was 25 years ago or right. whatever, however long we're into the 22 years. But, um, you know, people grow and age and change. They die, they get married, they get sick, they move, they get different jobs, whatever. And, um, you know, and I, I think that, you know, we can play around with, you know, plot versus character, not as if they're in opposition to each other as one supports the other. So I could write an episode that's just kind of like a one off little story. And it's uh, it's about some crazy adventure. And because the characters have already been built up over the years that we've done the show, the characters can kind of support this like wild hijinks, like a little heist story or something like that. But then sometimes I realize like, oh, I can just make a story that uh, I can make an episode or two that is really just about the characters, just to play around with language, to play around with like, here's just 25 minutes you can spend with these people. Um, and there's some plot in there, but the plot is really just about watching the characters or listening to the characters grow and develop. And I think I, you know, to use the example of growing up in Mesquite, Texas, like Mesquite is not a place I would ever suggest anyone move to. It's not a place I would ever want to live again. That being said, I think you can live almost anywhere in the world. Like think of the, the, the most boring town you can possibly think of. But if you lived on a block where you liked your neighbors, I think you'd really have a great time. And I think uh, that's that's a big part of books that that I the, what, one thing I have always loved about somebody like Stephen King, we can nitpick all of his bad endings but i think a stephen king novel the 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 thing that i think we underrate about his writing ability is his ability to immerse you in whatever town you're in and that's just where you're at like we're there for the thrills we're there for the scares we're there for his like pretty flat archetypes that he uses but at the same time i'm like i'm having a great time i don't know what to tell you but this is fun and i enjoy uh enjoy being my this character i like being harassed by greasers or whatever so i um <laughs> it's fine this is cool i i like that and i, I think that's a part that I, I have to uh i have to often remind myself to get to plot uh because i become enamored with characters i i really i really like being surrounded by interesting or delightful or 
complicated people. Well, and and I think you're absolutely right about Stephen King. Is the the genius of his writing is the ability to to hand you characters that you that you might know, you know, or th- these are people that, um, you know, this is this is the man that lives down the street from me, or this is the woman that I, you know, bump into in the grocery store, and you know, you just never know what's going on there. And I think that's what's uh, the. I, I don't think it gets talked about enough with with his writing and 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 people that that, that try to imitate his writing. There's there's a lot there that uh, that everyone can study and 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 pick up on for sure. Yeah. So you feel it uh, just below the ribs as your new novel. Um, how does this tie into uh, existing properties that you've worked on? Well, my co-writer Janina Matthewson and I write a podcast called Within the Wires. It's another fiction podcast. It's very different from Night Vale. It's not right. as not humorous. Uh, it is more uh, sci-fi, super immersive podcast. So the way that we do Within the Wires, the podcast is uh, we're in our sixth season. Each season is ten episodes, all about twenty minutes or so long each, and the each season is it's an anthology series. So each season is its own standalone story. Uh, They're all set in the same world, which is this alternate 20th century timeline that sort of imagines at the beginning of the 20th century, kind of around the time we would have had the First World War, um, there was an event instead called the Great Reckoning that would have been a a much more massive global warfare uh, that also combined with a a more unstoppable uh, flu pandemic. Um, as well as some uh, climate changey sort of things of the weather and uh, things of that happening. So it sort of imagines a cataclysm at the first part of the 20th century that took the world about 40 years to recover from. And then a new society was formed that was like a global government. It is sort of a utopic socialist uh, society, um, but with its deeper flaws of corruption and oppression and things that happen below the surface. But that's sort of the backdrop to each of the seasons of Within the Wires that is always kind of like a looming thing of like, what is this great reckoning? What is this new society? And uh, it's just the people that live in this world in some seasons, like the first was uh, was a uh, was told entirely through relaxation cassettes, where you are the person being <laughs> given relaxation cassettes. And you realize that over these 10 episodes that the narrator of the cassettes is actually trying to help you escape from the medical prison that you're in. And uh, we did one season. Each season is a form of found audio. One season was all voicemails between um uh, a, a young woman and, and her girlfriend and it kind of uh, tells a it's more of a romantic comedy but with a little bit of political intrigue underneath all of that so play with characters play with immersion into very specific one-on-one relationships was kind of what we did with within the wires which has been really fun to kind of hold to this motif of found audio that the whole season needs to be from that type of found audio um you feel it just below the ribs with uh, Janina and I writing this novel, and we set it in the world of this alternate 20th century, of this great reckoning and new society. Um, but what we did was, rather than found audio, because it is a novel, is it is a found manuscript that has been uh, annotated by an unnamed uh, group or person that is sort of calling into question the veracity of this manuscript. Uh, it's very, you know, kind of calls back to something like... Uh, Pale Fire was an inspiration for for how we structured the book. 
But um, yeah, it was uh, it's we would just wanted to make a standalone story just like each of our other seasons and kind of talk up talk about what it means to what it means to be a, a scientist, what it means to make a process by which you can help people uh, deal with uh, deal with uh, trauma and pain and memory and things like that. And and kind of talk a little bit about how uh, good inventions sometimes can be turned bad. So that was kind of the starting point from uh, from which we we began writing this novel. By by playing with the um, the idea or the um, uh, the tool of the found manuscript um, that then is being um, uh, you know gone over by other people and um, you know bringing into question some things, you get to then play. With the idea of an uh, unreliable narrator, uh, or you know, with with the reader kind of being off put and and not knowing who's telling the truth, what what is what is real, what is not. Um, that's a that's a fun mechanic to play with, isn't it? I love it. I think it's great. I think it's so hard to know what truth is in the book. We deal a lot with what what value memory even has. Uh, that memory is is so fallible. Um, memory almost like oxidizes when you when you expose it to the air and to the light, and uh, it it becomes something that it wasn't before. The more you think about a memory, the the more untrue it sort of becomes. And I think uh, I think the same thing could be said for you know anybody narrating their own experience or somebody else's experience. The game of telephone comes to mind, or just the way urban legends spread, or something like that. Yeah, it's it's really it's something I've always been interested in. It's it's pretty. I'm a big believer that all narrators are unreliable narrators. Like I don't even <laughs> have to make that its own subgenre. But um, it felt fun to draw attention to the unreliable narrator in this book by creating two different narrators. And it's not epistolary. It's not them arguing with each other. One is unaware that the other even exists. And right. so, um, yeah, playing with that and it, it puts the reader, I think, in a position not only to just read a story, but also to constantly question details of the story. And I hope that our hope was sort of that that gets reflected back on how we think about our own stories in our own lives. When you have something like um, uh, within the wires that that's a, a long running property um, that uh, has a kind of a, a fully fleshed out world that it uh, that it creates and, uh, and and you have all of these characters that live within that how do you uh, how does a character or a particular storyline present itself to you as the writer that uh, you know that this needs to be spun off there's there's more to be told here that uh, that needs the the form of a novel to to really flesh it out and to go different places than you could, uh, you know, than you can with an audio drama. Like, how does how does a uh, how did this come to kind of present itself to you and your co-writer Janina um, that this should be a different thing? I think some of it is just selfish enjoyment, right? You're just like, I'd like <laughs> to write a novel, and I hopefully somebody will will make it, and. You know, when, you know, from my experience writing novels set in the Nightville universe, you know, Within the Wires does not have nearly the size of the audience that Nightville has, but it has it has a decent, pretty good audience. And I, I think uh, knowing how the publishing industry works, I sort of 
if you already have followers on Twitter, you already have something that you're doing that is drawing attention to what you do. I think publishers are way more interested in in what you're pitching because they know you have a built in audience that will help them sell their book. So that's the financial <laughs> uh, really like uh, just cynical capitalist way of looking at that. Um, but, you know, you when you're trying to do this for a living, you're like, you have to think through things like that. So we sort of knew that. Uh, you know, with our relationship to Harper Collins, Harper Perennial is the imprint there that we uh, published through. Um, those folks there are awesome and great. And I knew that I would have like an, you know, an open phone line, metaphorically speaking, to be like, hey, I have an idea. You want to hear this idea? And uh, they got really excited about it. And that was really fun. We, you know, uh, so that that's part of it is just knowing that you have an avenue to get there. Um, that's an advantage and it's great. And we wanted to use that. And two, the the thing we can't do in our podcast within the wires is kind of go any time before the invention of audio recording. So, you know, I guess you could do old um, Thomas Edison cylinders or whatever, or Victrolas, <laughs> but like it, it, it just doesn't, it, it, we just didn't have anything quite there yet. And so we've played kind of with everything from like late fifties on after the invention of magnetic tape. Um, and so this gave us the opportunity to say what ha you could have somebody born in the early 20th century and live their whole life and tell their entire life story. And the manuscript is found after they've died. And you can tell the story of somebody on the ground living through the Great Reckoning, what was happening during that time, what was happening as the world started pulling itself back together, uh, what were they doing with themselves? And and throughout it all, the politics of it is always kind of in the background. The, the history of our fictional timeline is always sort of in the background, but um, it just gives us a chance to like explore people during this time in a way that we cannot actually do on the podcast without breaking the, the 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 conceit of the show when um when when folks are hearing this uh episode you feel it just below the ribs is going to be available uh to purchase everywhere and there's links to it in the show notes where you can get in a kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook um jeffrey because you are so uh, ingrained in audio production and you know these worlds that you've created you know have begun as uh, audio dramas um how do you approach or, or how do you feel about the the audiobook production of uh, of a book like you feel it just below the ribs i think i was really annoying to poor caitlin over at harper audio um she's been doing this for years producing audiobooks <laughs> through them and um she knows what she's doing and i've worked with her a couple of times and she's fantastic and I, uh, I definitely sent her a couple of emails being like, hey, I have, uh, how are you doing this? How are we doing this? How are you handling the footnotes? Because there's <laughs> footnotes. And also, here's a list of a bunch of people that I want as a narrator because I love audiobooks. I've listened to a ton. And uh, I just, uh, I, you know, and she was great about it and kind of answered all my questions. And I really appreciated that. And, you know, the, 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 the top two people that, that we wanted to narrate the book, uh, Kirsten Potter and uh, Adapera Aduye, um both said yep sure great and uh they narrated i just yesterday finally got uh the audiobook and started listening to it i obviously haven't plowed through the whole thing but uh it's great it's really wonderful uh they did a fantastic job uh we found two very it was important to me to find two voices that were very different from each other right. because you're going to have footnotes throughout um you're going to have these moments where there is no like 
you, you can't see the people. So when another person starts talking, you need to know immediately who they are and what they're doing here. And so you need to know who the meta narrator is and you need to know who Miriam is. And uh, and I, I was really happy with how distinct those two actors um, made their voices, um, made their styles, made their acting choices. And um, with audiobooks as compared to audio fiction podcasts, it's much more straight away. Like it's much more just straight, get the words out. So your, your acting choices has to be so much more subtle. And I, I just, I was really pleased with how great a job they did. And I was really worried about footnotes in an audio book. Um, and uh, I think it, it, it came together really, really well. It feels like two people in conversation more than it does like an interruption in the flow of the story. Uh, and I thought that really came together great. I just got uh, the audio arc from HarperCollins as, as well uh, yesterday. I think it was last night uh, when I got the email, and uh, I've I've read the book uh, in, in in arc form, and now I'm super excited to listen to it and just you know experience it in that way. Uh, so uh, I, I definitely recommend everyone uh, use the links in the show notes, grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook if you want to experience that it that way. Um, it's available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Jeffrey, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you do, where can they find you and connect with you online? Uh, the easiest place is going to be to find me on Twitter, and my handle is happierman, H-A-P-P-I-E-R-M-A-N. So you can find me happier man on Twitter, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I try and do my best to talk about the things that I've got going on, and, and a lot of that is podcasting, so Within the Wires and Welcome to Night Vale. I also do a chat show with my friend Cecil wherein we talk about horror movies. Um, it's called Random Number Generator Horror Podcast Number 9, wherein <laughs> Cecil's a big horror fan, and I've always been horror movie averse, and... We've been doing this for about a year and a half now where I've watched 80 movies. <laughs> it's been great. And we uh, we randomly figure out which movie we're going to watch next so that we're not handpicking that we are kind of all over the map. And it's been an absolute blast. So, um, yeah, I talked horror movies more in the last year than I ever have in my entire life put together. So uh, check that out. But, yeah, Twitter, uh, Happier Man is, is going to be the way to go. That is fantastic. We'll link up all those places in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for folks to find you. Jeffrey, this has been so much fun chatting. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of You Feel It Just Below the Ribs. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. No use crying over spilled milk. Eliza hated that cliché. She'd grown up a cliché, her life a bowl of cherries, duck soup, easy as pie, child's play behind a white picket fence. Mother had been the Wyatt Earp of clichés, firing them off quick draw. A rotten apple spoils the barrel. Smile and the world smiles with you. Every dog has his day. Children should be seen and not heard. She believed them all, particularly this last. Eliza obliged, preferring to wander the streets of Wytheville, Virginia, on her own lonesome terms. The divorce left Laura a spinster librarian, and one false step on icy stairs left her an invalid as well. The accident happened on New Year's Eve, 1950. Laura had just locked the doors of Wytheville Public Library, 
We must make black-eyed peas tomorrow, Laura had been thinking, with turnip greens. That ensured a lucky new year, and if you swept some money over your threshold, a prosperous one, too. She loved those old southern traditions. She looked both ways, checking for negroes, but turned to heel on the icy marble of the stairs and fell into the bushes below, breaking the long bones in both legs. Eliza had taken advantage of her mother's absence. She'd lost her virginity that same night. She'd swept Ron Partridge over her threshold, initiating her own beloved tradition. She was nursing a hangover, giddily reliving the event, but around 8.30 she realized that her mother had not come down to breakfast. She checked her mother's bedroom, found it empty, took the bus down to the library, climbed the high stairs, knocked hard on the library doors, and heard a groan below. Laura lay under the William Penn barberry bushes, below the yellow-trimmed windows of the non-fiction section. Her white stockings ran Jezebel red with blood. Sweat and melted snow had soaked her blouse, and her gray forehead blazed. The broken bones didn't kill Laura Merrick. She lay in the hospital, wheezing, her legs mortared up in casts. She had few visitors after the first week. Her church group was glad to fret over a poor thing for a day or two, but they trickled away when Laura had the bad manners to linger. On Valentine's Day, as her mother slept, Eliza drew big, sloppy hearts on her casts. Laura harumphed when she woke and insisted on keeping her legs hidden beneath blankets afterwards. But in late March, something miraculous happened. Laura's self-control dropped. She ranted at nurses, spit at doctors, swore like a Navy pilot dropping F-bombs on Hiroshima. She had dementia, the doctors said. Eliza decided that her mother had just stopped believing her own bullshit. The spells continued over the next two weeks, and Eliza enjoyed her mother's company for the first time. They swapped bawdy jokes, ogled the handsome interns, and chattered like best girlfriends late into the evening. They had long conversations, and Laura spoke her own mind in her own words about things that mattered to her. It broke Eliza's heart when the prim, condescending librarian returned. Laura hardly acknowledged anything that had passed between them. The clichés returned. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. A leopard doesn't change its spots. Nothing is certain except death and taxes. This last proved true. On April 15th, Laura Merrick marked her Bible with a tongue depressor, set it on her nightstand, leaned back against the headboard, and coughed blood down the front of her nightdress. Eliza found her that way dead as the proverbial doornail, and yes, the blood was thicker than water, just as her mother had always said. Much thicker than water, in fact, perhaps as thick as molasses in January. 